Thank you for joining the ones changing the world. India's first future tech meets sustainability podcast. And today I'm delighted and honored to have with me Mr. Robert Klupak, who's the CEO of the Bionics Institute, which is a world leader in medical device development. He has over 30 years of international corporate experience in technology development, mainly in the fields of medical technologies and biotechnology, with a particular focus on healthcare and is currently a non-executive director at Bionic Vision Technologies PTY Limited and ASX Listed Biogene Technology Limited. So, uh, Robert, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. Why don't we start with, uh, you know, what is biotechnology and bionics technology? Because, you know, there's all there's a haziness over there. So maybe I think it'll be great if you could start from there. Yeah, that's a really good question. Pleasure to be asked. So biotechnology is a field that I grew up in, and that's what I would argue is much more the molecular development part of the biotechnology, bio framework, uh, understanding molecular biology, cell biology, uh, plant biology, all that is what I call biotechnology. Um, Bionics, as the word implies, it's made up of two things. It's biology, bio, but the nics comes from electronics. And bionics, as opposed to bio, biotechnology, is the combination of physiology and electronics. And so the differences between biotechnology it covers a lot of mechanistic, molecular-based work, whereas bionics does cover a lot more based electronic and device-based work. That's how I would describe the difference. Right. Now, you're the CEO of the Bionic Institute. Could you talk about explaining what is Bionic Institute's mission and its core research focus? Yeah, our mission is very much to develop bionic devices to, to transform the lives of people with you know, debilitating disease. Uh, we came into being 40 years ago during the pioneering work of Professor Glenn Clark, who developed the cochlear implant which is stimulation of the nerve cells in the ear. Subsequently, we've taken that concept of a multidisciplinary approach to device development to also work about stimulating and recording from the nervous system to create a range of medical devices that can have an impact. And so right now, uh, our whole mission is to translate, as opposed to research, devices and prototypes all the way through to that meta clinical validation and perhaps usage by large scale people. So we work across a number of disease headings, but primarily in hearing research now, uh, a legacy of our cochlear implant days, but we've expanded that dramatically. Uh, we work very much in chronic inflammatory conditions. We've got a series of devices that work through stimulating the, the vagus nerve by quite unique mechanisms, which have had some profound results, which are moving into the clinic. And we've done, we continue to do lots of work in brain mapping and brain research. And we work developing devices and improving devices for Parkinson's disease. We're using a magnetic stimulation approach, which we're fascinated by, which we think can cure Alzheimer's disease. We've created a magnificent tool combining some of the knowledge in cochlear implantation and our electronics to have a fully integrated long-term seizure monitoring device for epilepsy, which is groundbreaking for people with the disease. And we're looking at a number of different applications in stroke, 
and motor neuron disease as well using devices. So it sounds quite broad, but the underlying platform we have is using um, electronics and devices to stimulate the nervous system in particular, and then trying to find diseases where they can have an impact. And we have about 117 people who work here, a combination of engineers, scientists, and the scientists range from auditory neuroscience to physicists to mathematicians to data scientists. And because we're located in one of Melbourne, Australia's major teaching hospitals, we have about 35 or 40 specialist physicians and doctors who consult to us and engage with us on our ongoing development. So it's a really interesting melting pot of cross-disciplinary skills that enables us to rapidly translate our concepts into the clinic. How cool is that? I, I want to break down these research areas, but before I kind of get into that, you know, mentioned you are the pioneers in, in the, the cochlear implant space, you know, over the period, I mean, you know, from the early days of, uh, you know, setting up cochlear implant plants, you know, pioneering that space. I mean, the, the entire uh, science and technology area has ac accelerated, you know, it's the uh, the tech acceleration has kind of, uh, you know, led to miniaturization of technology and, and there is more and more implants, wearable device, and we are understanding our bi biology much better. And by understanding the biology much better, like we are, it, it's like, you know, we enabling, you know, the better healthcare products, better wearables, better uh, implants. Uh, but, but, you know, how's the acceptance been, you know, I mean, talk to us about that, you know, for, I mean, right from the earlier days, is there still resistance to, you know, these wearable devices or, or, or you know, from the moral and ethical camp, camp or oh. there is more acceptance to uh, these wearables, you know, post, you know, the, the benefits of these? Yeah, I think I think two answers. In terms of wearables, I mean, we're all wearing, you know, Garmin watches and Apple watches and people just accept wearables now as part of daily living, particularly with a lot of disease monitoring linked to apps. It seems to have become almost passe, and the more information you get, a lot of those tools for wellness and self-monitoring, I think have become almost integrated, and that's building on the knowledge that we've got. The question possibly you're asking is, what do people think of the implantable devices and the impact that the implantable devices may have on their lives? And I think if you look back 30 or 40 years, any you know, the cochlear implant was just starting it's now been accepted. Pacemaker technology was in its infancy. Um, I think now so many people have pacemakers for their heart. Um, you think of other types of implantable devices that people have got put in, whether they be orthopedic, um, heart monitoring, and more recently, sort of putting things into people's heads to monitor what's going on. And people now have been, even had implanted glucose sensing monitors so they can have closed-loop insulin control. I think there's no doubt that implantable devices are much more accepted, although people still think, oh, that's difficult, and I'll prefer to have a drug rather than a device in me forever. I think what's changing a little bit, and I think this is moving down the implantable pathway, is that people are realising drug therapy is incredibly expensive, still with a lot of newer drugs, effective, improves lives, particularly life span, but not always quality of life, and, and people can't afford it. 
And so the idea of developing any planable device that perhaps can be put in for a one-off cost and maybe an annual visit to the doctor, which can alleviate um, symptoms. If you think of spinal cord stimulation or the like, uh, a sacral nerve stimulation or the like, that's a lot cheaper than having pain drugs every day of your life with much less side effects. So I see this changing both from a patient-directed do I really want to take these nasty drugs forever and I can't afford them? To much better devices coming through that can give them longer-term um, support. It hasn't quite got through a tipping point, I think it's fair to say. I think some of the devices are still bulky. I think the surgery is still, in many cases, difficult. And there's not as many surgeons who are quite well-trained enough to put them in in a mass setting point of view, and so the cost puts people off. But I see that's changed dramatically in the last 10 years, and I look forward 10 years, Eddie, and I can see implantable systems allied to wearable systems becoming much more prevalent across the medical sector. Right. I, I really hope and I wish that because, you know, there's so many people with debilitating uh, health conditions, and maybe these implants are the only route to give them you know quality uh, life now you said you've got you know your research field is across various fields you know right from brain research to autoimmune and chronic disease to hearing and vision research and even bionic uh, limbs research uh, talking about implants maybe can you you know elaborate on your research uh, when it comes to brain research and how has that helped what are the products that's been uh, come out of the research and how has that uh, led to better healthcare yeah so a lot of the products we've got to do with sensing eeg based sensing in particular so the device that we developed for epilepsy monitoring um, one of the issues that people know, if you're trying to if you're trying to treat someone with epilepsy, you need some feedback. And oftentimes, most epilepsy patients will take a log, a handwritten log. Of, I've had this many seizures this week, doctor, and go and see the doctor, and he'll try to change their therapy. We now know that those most of those things are wrong because of the amnesic response of seizures. They're so short, people are missing them. A lot are happening in their sleep. And so that's a terrible way to treat the disease. So everyone's been looking for a long-term monitoring tool of seizure patterns across the patient so the doctors can get a framework. If you think about it, the maximum time people can go to a hospital clinic to get tested is seven days, and that costs about $50,000. So that wasn't working. So people have been trying to fix it. For us, we developed a device that can be transplanted um, by just below the skin on top of the scalp, which is a, a very, very sensitive EEG collecting signal electrode. We've implanted that now in 27 patients, um, in some cases greater than three years. We've now got a tremendous signal that can be mapped 24-7 for those patients. And that's been wonderful to give them feedback. But more importantly, what that's meant is we've now got a personalised signature of EEG seizure patterns for patients and with some quite detailed machine learning capability getting access to that long-term data, we've been able to develop algorithms that can now forecast with very significant accuracy when people are likely to have a seizure. And one of the issues with epilepsy is that most people with epilepsy are fine 99% of the time 
that 1% of the time when they have a seizure, they just don't know when they're going to get it. So that stuffs up the rest of their lives. So if you can now forecast when you're likely to get it, or more importantly, with some of the advanced algorithms we've developed, we think we can now predict within reasonable confidence in some cases, and that's getting much better. We can develop a predictive tool. We implant you with your epileptic. We implant you with this device. You wear it for two or three months. We can collect your particular signals and then running our algorithm techniques now program into your settings a predictive tool to say when you are going to have a seizure so you can sit down and make yourself ready for it. Now, if you think of the impact that would have on people suffering from epilepsy, that's extraordinary. And that's probably only two or three years away now. Um, that's one that we've done. The second one we that I really like talking about is in the field of Parkinson's disease. There's some pretty good drugs, but they usually stop working. So a technique known as deep brain stimulation has been shown to be very effective. It has some issues, but it's been shown very effective when used. A lot of people were reluctant to go through the procedure because it needs to be done awake. The surgery is quite difficult. You need very gifted surgeons, and you also need to get the stimulating electrode to the right place every single time to be effective, and that was hard. And so the electrical engineers that I work with, working with neurologists and neurosurgeons, were able to find this particular signal that can help guide the electrode every single time, like using the sonar to guide it to exactly the right spot. Now, we're working with a major medtech company to integrate that finding into their technology. And what that likely means is we can... We can now do the surgery in the sleep setting as opposed to having to have the patient awake. Families love that. It means that surgeons, rather than using trial and error, all very gifted, can now use a tool to help them guide with much greater accuracy so it's much more likely they're more willing to do it and they can do it faster. So if at the moment 15,000 people a year are having deep brain stimulation, it's not very many, if our technique can be translated, which we think it can in the next two or three years, those numbers could double or triple or quadruple. And that's quite an amazing number. But that's all to do with my guys, my electrical engineers, my mathematicians and data scientists working together with neurologists and neurosurgeons to come up with something. It took six years to identify the signal, and now it's moving forward. And so we're very proud of that. And then more recently, again, using a modification of our EEG technique, uh, we're thinking that people who have had hemorrhagic stroke, um, we can utilise some of those things to actually work out whether they are likely to be at risk of further uh, bleeds or not. And be able, so a tool to be able to take them out of ICU into general care. It don't, might not sound like very much, but that has a huge impact on the health of patients who have had hemorrhagic stroke. So that's one thing that's in development. And the last thing that you know, I'm really proud of is that we've just brought in a team in recent times who want to pioneer a different approach to treating cognitive decline or Alzheimer's disease by using, by getting the brain networks to reconnect using magnetism, a transmagnetic stimulation of particular parts of the brain, using lysing to personalise algorithms that we've developed to say, which part of the brain do we need to stimulate to create new networks for you? The early pilot results are really fascinating and incredible. We're now about to start a major trial, and we think that could revolutionise the way Alzheimer's is treated in the next five or ten years. So 
there, there's just an example. There's a few other things bubbling along below the surface, but those are the four things that we're publicised most nearly. We we at the cusp of a, a very fantastic point in time where maybe in the next few decades, all, all of these like really chronic health issues, especially neurological, could be you know maybe you know I mean controlled in ways or completely be treated. So exciting, exciting times. Now the Bionic Institute has also been involved in developing a bionic eye implant. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this technology? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of stalled for lack of funding but at this point in time, but we're very proud. We work with a consortium, and one of the issues with bionic eye suit and bionic eye development is that previous iterations when this first came about were taken 11 or 12 hours worth of surgery. They'd be stapling, effectively, devices onto the retina, and if people are aware of the anatomy of the retina, it's like effectively like wet tissue paper is the consistency of it. You can imagine what it's like to be putting stapling things onto that. So we knew that was always going to be problematic and it would move around. So when we designed, my guys designed a concept with our ophthalmological surgeons, uh, there's a particular pocket behind the, just between the retina, the suprachoroidal pocket. We designed a device that could be slid in um, that was the first iteration, first innovation, so it can be done with much more simple surgery. And then the device itself um, was much smaller than others, had 44 really unique electrodes added into it, and we can then stimulate those electrodes to send signals back to the retina to cause or the visual cortex to allow blind people effectively to see uh, pixels or light stimulation if there was an object in front of them. The results that we had, we don't give people, people often think bionic eyes are giving people back sight like you and I know. What they really are is a fantastic visual aid for people who are unsighted to know that there's an object in the way. So if you think of a blind person who's got a guide dog, um, guide dogs often can only see you know, a metre off the ground and so someone's working, they're hoping the dog can see a tree branch, they usually can't. With the bionic eye, people were new to that object, they could physically see that there would be an object in front of them by lights flashing in response to this. So that was really quite powerful. And a lot more work has been done developing depth perception into the technique we developed. And we could have people walking along unaided by having blind people, you know, really no capability of seeing anything, being able to walk unassisted simply because they can see they can pick up objects in their way because their eye or visual cortex was being stimulated by what was happening in front of us with the device in their eye that is something we're extremely proud of but the company needs to raise another it's been put into a company seven patients have been implanted results quite extraordinary a company needs to raise another $20 million to move itself forward to do a major clinical trial to get FDA registration. And uh, that's been difficult in the current climate, but it is sitting there as one of the most wonderful advances of all time. And it's pretty frustrating that we can't raise the money, but um, we're going to keep trying. And the people running the company are continuing to try because the technology is just so good. Eyesight is the core to a human. And it is the 
it it is a huge and genuine problem i mean you know if solved can really really upend the world completely and it's surprising that you know the the funding is not there because you know i mean i see vcs pouring in money in products which are like really really not even ready so it's it's extremely surprising that you know i mean vcs are not funding like a genuine problem can you elaborate on this suprachoroidal visual implant that you talk about i mean could could you elaborate on this what's the process is there glasses that the the patient needs to wear how how, how does i mean and what is it that the pers- i mean the blind person can see the test that you you you've done this morning time yeah. how, how do you enable that can, if you can elaborate on this it'll be nice well, i probably need a diagram to show you and um, but really there's a an electrode that's effectively put behind the eye in the supercoral space. Um, it takes a light source. There's, that's connected to glasses, uh, and that sends a, signal, a, a wireless signal back to the patient, effectively, in the form of flashing lights that they would see. They see flashing lights. We, you and I see vision. They see flashing lights in response to something in front of them. Uh, but the concept is really lights coming in, collected by an electrode. Uh, light comes in by the glasses, it stimulates the electrode so that the patient sees light sources in response to a stimuli. Uh, it's not vision as you and I know it, but it's it's pixelated, it's flashes of light that, that come up with the, that we believe the patient sees. And that's what, when you talk to the patients, that's what they say they see. You know, you're also a registered uh, patent uh, attorney and, you know, the world has completely changed, you know, maybe like the 20 years of the world. I mean, everything was in a linear process, you know, and when, when you created something, you had to you, you to create a patent of it so that, you know, you have the IP and stuff like that. But today the world is becoming more uh, hyper-connected. It's, it's, it's more open. Uh, so so what, what are your views on, on this Open source uh, uh, innovation versus patenting closed. Uh, I mean, could, could, could you give, give some thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, look, uh, believe me, at one level, I'm, I'm all for open source sharing information so that innovation can happen. And something should be shared. Right? Um, data in and of itself and knowledge, you know, we, we put it out there. The whole, the whole thing about the patent system as a patent attorney the contract was: if you tell us what you've done, we'll we'll withdraw, we'll reward you with a limited monopoly. Right? That's the whole concept. It's like we won't keep it secret. If you want to protect it with a patent, you've got to tell us what you've done. So it's knowledge sharing because at the end of the the patent period, the knowledge is available. But it's a lengthy process, an expensive process. Um, the problem with open source: if you, everything you do, you put out in the public domain, what are you protecting? And what's your moat around your product so that you can make money from your innovation? So it's a balance, really. So there's some things that are, their product life cycle is so fast and short that you would never, by the time you patented it, it's already obsolete. So why bother? And you're seeing so many apps and things like that. But a lot of the stuff that you and I just spoke about, highly regulated devices, highly regulated drugs, that you need to get a return and the cost of development is so much. You need to know that. If you finally make it, no one's going to copy it and take just get a free ride on everything you've done. And you also need to, to protect the investment that you're making. So are these horses for courses? I think sometimes it's really smart to get as much information out there 
from a capitalist point of view because you can make money quickly and you move on. It's constantly evolving. But I think in terms of the field that I work in, class three implantable medical devices, which as I've just told you, can take a long time to get to market, you need to be patenting a lot. And you need to consist continually patent to protect because just because you've come up with a way early on, it doesn't mean that someone won't be able to work around you. So it's, it's constant innovation. And the reason, and part of the things we do, we monitor the patent literature very heavily to see what people are doing so we can create more innovation by, oh, that's what they've done. I can make something a bit different that won't infringe their patent, but can make it better. So the patent system helps us continue to innovate, albeit you've got to be clever about it, as opposed to open source where I can just play. But if you want to get product that can help the human in the type of work that I do with drugs or implantables, someone needs to make money out of it in the end back. Uh, uh, and the reality is if people can't get a return on their investment because they've got some level of protection, they won't develop it. So open source is very important for a number of areas. But I think patenting is just as important, particularly for the early stage innovator and entrepreneur, because you know they need to be rewarded for their ingenuity. And it depends what field that you're in, right? So if you're in the fast moving space with apps, well, it doesn't matter. But if your genius is developing a new wave of medical devices or new drugs, you need to have that rewarded. And the system that does that is the patenting system. Right, right, fair enough. You, your research work is also in bionic limbs. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that's a very new one. We've, we're so proud to have recruited uh, Max Catalan um, from the Centre of Pain and Bionics Research at Chalmers University in Sweden. He's now joining us at Bionics. We're keeping his lab in Sweden. He's a pioneer in developing neurally, medi neurally mediated osseo-integrated implants. So... People who have had amputations are usually wearing prosthetics, you know, the socket-based thing. He's developing smart uh, implants that can be directly implanted into the bone, whether it be the wrist bone, the arm or the elbow, the shoulder, below the knee or the hip. And he designs them in a way that they can become integrated into the person so that the brain can control the prosthetic, which is incredibly exciting. He's leading the world. But the other path of why we were keen to recruit him was that in amputees, as you may know, um, the incidence of a disease called phantom pain, where is, is incredibly debilitating for a lot of amputees. They can perhaps get a prosthetic that they help them move around, but it's the phantom pain that's very problematic and no one's ever been able to work out how to overcome it. One of the areas that we're working very closely with Max is developing again, neurally mediated mechanisms with some techniques that we've also got at the Institute to treat people with phantom pain to overcome those conditions. So integrating two research streams, developing much better neurally integrated prosthetics with a brain control prosthetics that we add and, and hopefully they become almost as normal as possible. And that is something that he leads the world in. And we think in the next two to three years, we'll have new clinical trials happening from Australia. But in parallel with that, also Max is developing a way to treat phantom limb pain using a combination of virtual reality and brain stimulation. And that fits into the field of work that we wanted to do previously in brain stimulation. He's now using that in prosthetic control and pain relief. 
And it's just such a fascinating intersection of two areas of research in one institute, which I think makes us quite unique. Uh, any advice for young people who are interested in pursuing a career in the field of bionics? Oh, I think, it's, to be honest, I think it's something they should really get behind. Me, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember the movie and the television series, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Man, and people thought it was science fiction. It's no longer science fiction, Eddie. It's becoming mainstream, and there's so much to do, and it's so much fun because you're dealing with biology, you're dealing with electronics, you're dealing with mechanical engineering. If you've got an interest in any of those three fields, you can make an enormous impact by making better and better devices because we've only just touched the surface. There's generations of devices to be made that haven't been made yet. And so anyone with an interest in A, those fields of, of interest, B, wanting to do stuff that can impact on the human condition and C, see the results of, their, of what they're doing pretty quickly, this is an area I should get into. And I'm, I would love the next generation of scientists to be more involved in medical devices than drug development, to be honest, because I think the world can afford medical devices. They can't always afford the new drugs. Right. How do you see the field of bionics evolving in the coming years and what role do you see the Bionics Institute playing in the evolution? I think, I think you'll find a lot more of the devices will become smaller, much more integrated into the body. And, you know, we're controlling them in closed loop mechanisms. So uh, the body's controlling the implanted device and turning it on and off as it comes along. You'll see many more of those across, you know, cardiology, orthopedics, neurological disease. I can see that happening right now. I think we will play a, a major role because... Over the last 40 years, we've developed a, a basis of those skill sets that people want to build from. And some of the animal models and the surgical techniques to test these things very quickly. So I think we will always be making and leading the world in new advances. Whether or not we take them to the world ourselves, I'm not sure. But I think I'd like to have created in the next 10 years another 20 or diff 20 different devices that could be in 20 different companies that are making a difference to a number of people's lives. So I think we can do that. I think then people can look at us as an exemplar of the field and perhaps set up their own bionics institute in India or somewhere that perhaps we're collaborating with. Because if you look at India, um, you know, you've got some incredible talent in data science, incredible talent in engineering, um, I think, and, and incredible talent in, in manufacturing. What you're possibly missing is some of the animal model work and some of the history that we've got and I think you know that companies like countries like India and in countries in Southeast Asia could get much more heavily involved in device development than they've ever been because drug development is so hard but device development is that, that bit easier and bionics could make a difference and I think we can give everyone around the world an exemplar of how to do that. Keep on doing your work. I mean, you know, it's really exemplary, you know, from being the pioneers of cochlear implant to now uh, spreading your research across brain research, autoimmune and chronic conditions to hearing and vision research to bionic limbs. And I hope that there's more and more products from your institute getting going to the market and uh, upending the healthcare. Uh, and on that note, really appreciate you taking time being part of the podcast. And my listeners, if you like what you see in here, please press the subscribe button. And until next time, see you guys. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate this. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. I hope it goes well.